to Contracast. My name's Kat Boyd. I'm joined tonight with my lovely co-host, David Jameson. I'm happy to report that we're both in good health. Mm, so far. <laughs> so far, up until this point. Like, I mean, I think we're probably in good physical health. Well, it's as good as I've ever been in. Yeah. Um, but mentally probably quite shredded. Mm. We have a very special edition of the pod today. We've got our good comrade Ben Ray on the line. Um hi Ben. Hello. Hi. Um Ben is currently in lockdown in the Basque country in the north of Spain. Um and has been for how many days are you on now? Oh god, what day is it? I'm, I'm losing track of time. <laughs> I believe I believe it's Friday. Five. Friday. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's day, day number five of the week, yes, Friday. No, 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 I mean five days then. All right. <laughs> right, so basically what I'm picking up here is that the lockdown has probably made you go a bit insane. A little bit, but the good thing about being in lockdown here is it's warm outside and we have a balcony. So when you guys go into lockdown in about, I predict about four or five days, it's going to be a lot. More, it's going to be a lot more miserable than uh, than you won't get the sun at all. You'll just be inside, dark, misery, worrying about a great depression. So uh, uh, you're correct on some points, but I actually disagree with other points. What I'm going to do first is I'm just going to let you let you introduce yourself. So maybe you could tell us like what you do. And make it sound good because um, we're bringing you in here to talk about the economy as well. So make it sound like you know what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to pretend that I am. But I, I write a lot about economics. I'm a, a political journalist. Uh, I do a morning newsletter, uh, which is now called Source Direct. New name. <laughs> um, so you can you can sign up for that. You go to. Um, newssource.scot slash morning, morning list and you get my morning newsletter all about Scottish politics. And I, obviously, I, I do have a freelance journalist stuff. I've been in the Basque Country since last October. How is are that, you in the Basque Country? Uh, good. Good. It's a, it's a very communal society. Isn't uh, it? Very, place very, to live. Very, it's a beautiful place to live. It's a beautiful place to live. It's got a very strong, um, strong cooperative traditions, strong community traditions. So, so we're going to survive the apocalypse better than Scotland. That's my prediction. Okay. I mean, the Basque people have survived a lot. Exactly. Like their yeah. language, Esquera, is an ancient language, and it's been like preserved through the mountains around the Basque country. Um, it's, uh, it's it's a very it's special not, place. It's not Indo-European. It's the only language in Europe that's not Indo-European because it came, it was there before in the European languages. Yeah. So yeah, a language isolate and very ancient and very very difficult. <laughs> I lived in the Basque country for a year and a half and I could barely speak Esquera. I did try though, but all the words I know are like the word for storm and dream and struggle, <laughs> <laughs> all that sort of stuff. I can't speak any use here yet, and I'm struggling with Spanish, so I'm glad we're doing this in English. Uh, oh, we should say, by the way, you did say that this was uh, uh, Contacast. It is actually Coronacast. Coronacast. I also wanted to call it a uh, Plague Pod. 
we're, we're going to be bringing these out uh, as frequently as we can throughout the yeah. period where political activity has essentially been shriveled down to podcast articles, online stuff in general, because one of the things uh, uh, that's causing so much neurosis at the moment is that we can't organise a single public meeting, a single demonstration, whatever, as what appears uh, to be possibly the worst economic crisis in the history of capitalism begins. Before we get started on that, uh, there's, there's one other person who may intrude on the podcast every so often we're also joined by james foley oh wait dr james foley thank you (laughs) um so james and ben are writing a book together uh with verso on independence independence yeah um scottish pop oh I just when I touched the microphone, they accidentally muted it. So <laughs> just yeah. Okay, is it on? Mm-hmm. Is this thing on? Uh, okay, yeah. So um, I'm having a bit of a Biden moment here, to be honest. Yeah, you're really uh, doing like the academic trade quite a service. <laughs> yeah, I mean exactly. True representation. What What did you ask me again? I can't. Even what you What's your book about? Yeah. Scotland. Right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> When's it out? When's it out? Oh, that's, t- that's the worst question you could ask me. I would reckon it'll be out about January or February next year. But you've got tons of time now to write it, huh? Oh, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Because <laughs> I never knew how I was going to finish this for our deadline of August. And then along comes the pandemic and suddenly... Uh, I'm no longer required to be at my workplace. There's no surveillance. Um, everything has just kind of collapsed in terms of order. Um, and I've got not unlimited time, but a great deal more time than I might have imagined to be working on my book. I hope my boss isn't listening to us. But James, how how can we write the book now with this pandemic? Because we don't know anything about the, about where are we? Well, we just need to put some. I hope the publishers don't hear that. I hope the public. Yeah, James. How do we write our book? We don't know anything. (laughs) Welcome to the pod. That is exactly the sort of batch we like here. What I mean by we don't know anything is the world The world has just changed, doesn't it? It's just turned on its axis. So Yeah, you know, uh, that's how I feel as well, Ben. Like, I feel like so much has changed and it, I find it really disorientating going outside and everything looks the same. Do you know what I mean? Like, even today, like, I went down Sucky Hall Street um, and... There were still people cutting about. There's still tons of pubs open, and I'm like, but but nothing is the same. Yeah, everything has mm. shifted so dramatically in the space of a week. Um, well, everything has completely shifted in the last half an hour. Yeah, that's true. So as of as of the last half an hour, we're recording this about half an hour after Rishi Sunak, the um, the Chancellor in the UK, unveiled a gigantic package of state intervention, which he rightly said is unprecedented in the history of the British state. That's what he said. He, he specifically re- mentioned, referenced the British state as the uh, as the register of this situation, which is important in itself. Some of the measures he unveiled were that the state would basically guarantee the wages of anyone threatened with the sack because of coronavirus. He also noted that that was completely unprecedented in the history of the state. So 
there is no point in the development of the British state, which is the oldest kind of you know leading state in, in the history of British capitalism, there's no point in history where it has behaved quite like this. Um, you know, I mean, you, you might you might look at some wartime measures and say that they were of a similar dimension, but in peacetime, certainly, uh, absolutely nothing like this, including, say, during the, the Great Depression. Now, my sense is there are some some of the some of the. I mean, I, I don't want to start whinging about the media straight away, but the BBC's coverage of this is babyish, and it's clear that either they don't understand what's happening. Or why, or the or someone in the government is speaking to them and just saying follow our lead because it, to see the BBC's coverage, you would think that this was essentially about a virus. This is about the government looking at the uh, statistics in the United States. Is my feeling. And Ben, you are uh, you've been following those. Like, what is the actual situation with the global economy? Well, well, on the verge of a Great Depression. Like we've not seen certainly since before the the war, um, I think something like fifteen um, percent of jobs have just gone in the U.S. according to to some statistics, um, fourteen million jobs. Um, so these are numbers. These are numbers that you know absolutely dwarf two thousand and eight. Make two thousand eight look like a tiny blip. Um, actually, if you look at on a graph, I was looking at a graph just before this um, of people applying for unemployment benefit. It actually is so high this week in the US now that you can barely see 2008 on the graph. It's so small. Yeah. So that 2.5 million people um, applying uh, for unemployment benefit in the US. Um, so you're talking about a, a catastrophic collapse in the global economy. And obviously, the important thing to recognise is that it's totally different from any other economic uh, crisis we've seen in recent times because it's intertwined with the biggest public health crisis the world's ever seen, probably since the Spanish flu, uh, just at the end of the of the First World War. Certainly, on a global on a global level, there's been other health crises in particular parts of the world that have been much more severe, like in Africa and Malaria and, and such like. But mm-hmm. a global a global uh, pandemic, uh, it, it, it's the worst, and Europe is now the epicenter of that. The problem is the normal mechanisms that capitalism has for resolving uh, economic crisis uh, aren't really available to it to it because it has to lock down. Um, countries to stem the virus. So it's an unprecedented um, situation where where there's there's no real obvious solutions um, to to the economic situation, which would allow them to also contain the virus. So are you saying that it's like the like it's a twin crisis of like a global pandemic combined with the the shock to the economy that's going to be like the defining feature. Well, the usual way you get out of a of a financial crisis is called countercyclical spending, where you use government levers to induce more market activity. So you you lower interest rates, or you boost public spending, and you increase demand in the economy. You try and increase activity in the economy. Yeah. So, like the Bank of England dropping the interest rate, for example. Exactly. Yeah. But it doesn't really make any sense in this situation when you're trying to lock down economies. You don't want sick people going to work. Yeah. Uh, 
across across whole economies. So there's a there's a fundamental contradiction in in the situation, and there's no real there's no real mechanisms for capitalism to to restore um, economic activity, um, and and therefore that's why we're seeing. You know the Tories are are now paying the wages of uh, for, uh on behalf of capital because cap- otherwise capital would just be laying people off in their millions. I mean, I've noticed this sort of like chat on social media about this being some kind of like massive socialist type intervention. I think it's really important that we don't go down the route of that that kind of discourse. Because actually, this is about protecting capital. Yeah, I mean, this is not about a fundamental shift in the economic system, which needs to happen. Capitalism is completely ill-equipped to deal with this crisis. I think that the thing that I've been really struggling to get my head around, like since reading those figures from the US, is the idea of fourteen million people being laid off. Yeah, like that's that's more than double the population of Scotland. Yeah, and like it's a it's a kind of unimaginable number if you like. Yeah, and that's. People forget as well, we now live in societies where, because societies are ageing in particular, um, you know, it's only about half the population that is actually in work. So that 14 million people, you have to double that number to understand the scale Mm. of the social impact. And that's something that's all happened in about the last three or four days. Almost all of those redundancies took place in the last few days. There was no point in the Great Depression where jobs disappeared that fast. No point. But it's so much more than that. One in four of the American workers who have remained in employment have reduced their hours. So the, the, yeah. the scale of the loss of incomes and earnings is utterly, utterly profound. It's incredibly fast. In all the the point that you were making there, Ben, the years all since we went did did our fucking Time at university on uh, on sort of basic economic orthodoxy. The first thing you were taught is that basically economics was a debate between, to the extent that it was a debate at all, between people who were interested in the supply side and people uh, who were interested in the demand side. And debates about how you deal with something like a recession revolve around whether you think you should stimulate supply or demand or whatever. We're now in a situation where every government, every major government in the world is deliberately uh, suppressing both supply and demand because they have to, and there's nothing that they can do to stop it. To make concrete for people why stimulus won't work, economic stimulus works if the problem is one of market confidence. Do you know what I mean? If you're worried about what the economy is going to look like in six months' time, you're reassured by someone giving you a bung, and you might go out and spend money on goods and services. The state is telling you not to spend money yeah. on goods and services. That, I think that really played out on the American Stock Exchange. Yeah. When was that? I think that was maybe Tuesday when they reopened trading. And even though there had been all these easing me- measures put in place, it continued to just bottom out. Yeah. The, the, yeah. It had, it had no impact. The, the Federal Reserve unleashed wave after wave of money they just magicked up on a computer just as they did in 2008. <laughs> but in 2008, yeah. it did some things. Now it's doing nothing. It's just doing absolutely nothing. Um, so I think Rishi Sunak's, what he's announced today is a response to that. Just to just to, to, to run down for folk who may have missed it. So it's that he's guaranteed the, the, those wages at eighty percent. He's chucked a lot more money at the welfare state. 
for for uh, uh, emergency assistance. And the third thing he's done is frozen a whole range of taxes. So the state's finances are getting burnt at both ends here. <laughs> taxes are getting cut off and uh, huge amounts of money are about to be shoveled out. There's a couple of things that Rishi Sunak said, the tone of what he said that I think is vitally important as well, just in case we're tempted to think this is just about economics. I think it's a much more profound ideological change. Rishi Sunak said that there was, quotes, no limits to the money he was willing to hand out to protect specifically workers. He then thanked the Trade Union Congress specifically for uh, the discussions they'd had in that regard. So they're very consciously building like a corporatist construct. You know, that's what it was referred to historically. In the economies in the 20s and 30s, where they used state capitalism to stave off the depression, this was called corporatism. That's what Mussolini called it and people like that. So it's very, the state and the workers are one entity. Yeah. And um, mm. yeah, and there is no end to the um, assistance that the state will give to the working class. No end because we're a compact. He talked up, um, we're all in it together, one nation type stuff that we're used to. But perhaps most importantly at all, half of what he said um, was, in this time, I am telling you to be kind to your neighbours. He said he wanted students to go out and get shopping for their elderly neighbours. He said he wanted to do blah, blah, blah. So what we're seeing here is a new moral economy. The state is now the moral guardian of the society, which is a profound, profound change in the way we do politics. Just interesting to note as well, though, like, can you imagine if Keir Starmer had been in charge of the Labour Party, that they would have made this much of a break this quickly towards this policy? I don't believe no, it. I don't no. think he would have. Like, I think he would have been too scared of the tabloids, too scared of people calling him a Marxist and a communist, etc., yeah. etc., even a Corbyn government, I'm tempted to say, might well have been too timid to have introduced this degree of measures. Yeah. It's an interesting reflection, though, of the way that the contemporary right operates, because only a week ago, all your Johnsons and your Trumps and so on, they were going with this herd immunity idea. They were going for a very laissez-faire approach. Um, it looked like they were departing from the mainstream of much of the policy that was going on in China, the European continent, and so on. And it looked like we were behind the curve. Now, at that point, of course, the left, i.e. Starmer, Sturgeon, maybe even the Greens, etc., etc., really could have been right on top of this, uh, making the case for such fundamental and overarching policy responses. Mm -hmm. To the extent that they ever did anything like that, it was completely invisible. I, and made no impact whatsoever. So they missed the opportunity to be ahead of the curve and to actually place themselves at the forefront of this crisis. And now it's the Tories with Sunak in particular, Johnson, etc., etc., who really look like they are in command of this national crisis, when only a week ago they took completely the wrong turn Mm. Had to make a U-turn within days. But interestingly, Sturgeon and others on the so-called societal left really were going along with it, were triangulating to the Conservatives and weren't having they just lacked the intellectual audacity to come out for what needed to happen. And that's why I think what we're looking at now is that we have reinforced the conclusion that we're facing a decade at least of Tory hegemony um, because they are more ideological, uh, ideologically flexible 
on the right. I still think there's strong elements of the left, by which I mean your Starmers, your Sturgeons, etc., etc., who are addicted to trying to continue some form of neoliberalism, even at yeah. the point where it's completely unviable. Yeah, I, I think all of that is... I think all of that is true. I think you make a really interesting observation, particularly the idea of like someone like Keir Starmer in charge of the Labour Party mm. and this crisis erupts. How would he have, which tact would he have taken? I think it's got to tell you something very fundamental about British democracy and the functions of British democracy and why the institutionalised left has always been weak. So if you think back to, this is why I've been like desperate for like a coherent response from the left, because it's a chance for the left to make amends to society for the lack of action over austerity in 2008. Like the lack of response to austerity was so minimal. Like Mm -hmm. I remember really clearly 2008, 2009 into 2010, like I was a union member of one of the only unions that was taking strike action that then led up to the point of like the big strike on the 30th of November. And then very quickly afterwards, it all dissipated because the institutional left is so terrified of quote unquote alienating like the middle England voters or pissing off the tabloids like all of those things and I think that that has to teach us a lesson like actually at this moment there is a chance for the organised and institutional left to provide a response that we should have provided over a decade ago when austerity happened when there was the crash Mm -hmm. the financial crash in 2008 we've already missed the boat I mean I think the institutional left has missed its moment uh, over the last week, that's when he should have done it. But uh, see, see, just to see, just to kind of reinforce that 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 point about the distance between. So obviously, in two thousand and eight, which is a smaller crisis than now, Gordon Brown was in charge, and he, um, he, yeah, so he 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 responded to the financial crisis. Nothing like this, of course. But I, Rishi Sunak using the phrase "no limit." To the money that he would give to, to workers laid off just brought to mind Gordon Brown's famous phrase that he would write a blank check for the Iraq war. We now have a situation where the only major state action to which there is no limit to the state coffers that the, the centre left is willing to embark upon is a war of aggression. <laughs> <laughs> and the only people who are willing to say the state is simply there to provide workers with a living, which is you know bollocks, of course it is, right? That's not why yes. we're deploying this. But the, the only people willing to say that in the current political climate are the Conservative Party, or the party of the capitalist class. It's a truly remarkable situation. I honestly think it re- renders most of the centre-left totally irrelevant, right? So even a few days ago, I was saying this because Nancy Pelosi specifically ruled out Trump's policy of chucking $1,000 at everyone in the United States. So she did that before Trump adopted that policy when people within the Democrats were calling for the Democrats to announce that policy. And I thought, well, that'll land them. A couple of days later, the head of the, uh, the Dems in the House reiterated that, attacked Trump from the right and said that he was being irresponsible, right? So there has been a complete role reversal where um, uh, centre-left parties are on, on, on basic economic policy now to the right of the main right-wing formations in, the we- in, in Western economies. 
a, a totally bizarre situation, but one I think we've been heading towards for about 10 years. Can I make a point? Because I think some people will might listen to this and might well criticise us, either saying that we are supporting Sunak, which clearly we are not, uh, or that we're saying something along the lines of the fact that, like, you know, that Labour has never taken a policy position to the left mm. of the Conservatives on this, which obviously at points they would have. The point is, though, we can make criticisms about this policy proposal. We can say there are holes in it. We can do all of those things. But when we're doing it, we're basically tailing the momentum of the Conservatives. They are thoroughly in charge of this crisis now in a way that the centre-left simply isn't. We just do not have the audacity, the authority, uh, the ability to lead in the moment of crisis. It manifested itself in 2008, where we spent all of our time trying to defend against tabloid attacks, which said that New Labour spent too much and that caused a crisis. And we got so embroiled in that sort of narrative that we completely missed the boat in terms of making the fundamental shifts that were necessary. We never solved the problems of 2008. Wages have been basically stagnant for a decade. Now we've hit this moment and it comes in the back of that economic crisis. Some of the people think, and I think there are people saying, and I think Ben is probably is going to say this at some point, how does capitalism get itself out of this situation? There is an argument, I think, I'm going to preempt what Ben's going to say on this, uh, probably, but I think there is an argument to be seen that capitalism really needs fundamental crisis. That is the way that capitalism operates. And by destroying built-up businesses and living standards and so on, that's how it regenerates itself for a new period of growth. Now, there is an extent to which under the banner of the social and economic emergency, this might provide a basis for capitalism, which has been limping along for a long time, uh, to find a new way of operating, organising labour and restoring its profitability in a way that it really hasn't been able to do for a number of decades. Whether it can do that, I don't know. And partly it's about whether they can deal with the ideological damage that might come along with this crisis. But the fact that it's come with a pandemic kind of gives them the ultimate excuse for what's about to happen, which will be a tremendous depression. Ben, have you got any thoughts on any of that? Let me let me counter James with a few things. Um, first of all, I think I think these are totally underestimating this crisis. I don't think the Tories are we're, we're heading to ten years of Tory hegemony, or the Tories are in control of this at all. I think what the, I think what Vishy Sunak has announced today is not going to do much. Think about it. Right, you said they're going to pay eighty percent of um, businesses' wages. Right to keep them uh, hiring people, but businesses corporate debt has never been higher as a percentage of GDP ever yeah. in the history of capitalism than it is right now. Businesses is about twenty about twenty percent of businesses can't last about two months without getting bringing profits in. So they can't even those tw that twenty percent of the wages they would continue to pay will be a huge burden if they are not making any money. Right, so that's number one. Number two. Hundreds of thousands of people have already lost their jobs. They're not included in what Rishi Sunak's announced. Number three, Boris Johnson's just announced that pubs, restaurants, bars are all closed down. Right, So that's another announcement today. 
Yeah. So they're all, they're all short. That's hospitality done. Tourism, aviation is 10% of global GDP done. Mm. No one's flying. No one's going on holiday. So you're not talking about... You're not talking about the destruction of, say, 5%, 10%, even 15% of capital as it stands. You're talking about, remember, this is a house of cards. Once you knock one, once you knock one down, um, it, it, it bounces on another one. Like, for example, look at all those restaurants and pubs. Who, they, they've, they've got debts which they pay to banks. Banks are going to have a, a major credit crisis uh, uh, as it stands. The government aren't up to speed with this. That's why three days ago, Rishi Sunak announced uh, a speech which uh, underwrote 300 billion of bank loans to the city of London. And two days later, he's making another speech because the first speech was nonsense. It was not going to do anything. More loans for companies that can't produce and can't sell their goods. This is a much more fundamental crisis than that is much more fun in, in, in many ways is much more fundamental than than uh, than a financial crisis because it's a crisis of the labour force. If people can't go out to work, they can't create profit for capital. It's a fundamental problem. So I I I, I think I don't see I don't see this as the Tories taking charge or anything like that. I predict chaos, absolute chaos as it stands. Uh-huh. They're going to have to take much much stronger state controls to to get control of this situation. So do you think that this is like Sunak's speech today and the announcements are like almost the the actions of a desperate man? Like the idea that the Tories will do anything to protect the the system, they will do anything to protect capitalism, even if it means like tacking left ideologically, they can present that in such a way where it is tied in with their soft British nationalism, that we're all in it together, which Cameron, you know, has always wanted to make happen, but he can't do it under the economic conditions that he created and helped escalate. So do you think that it's kind of like there's a desperation to this of the writing of the blank check that the the Tories are just like, will throw anything to make capital like satisfied in some way and you're saying from what I gather that that's that's not going to be enough Richard Sunak said we'll underwrite the economy because they are desperate absolutely desperate for companies not to just sack people en masse because if they sack people en masse then the whole thing falls apart people stop paying their bills that means electricity companies fall apart people stop paying their rent the whole the whole house of cards just collapses. So he's desperate to try. Basically, what he's tried to do today is to keep the system suspended in midair through monetizing it. If you can monetize it for enough and get over this virus, and remember, the virus is just at the start. Britain Britain is going to uh, the NHS is going to be overwhelmed within within about a week or a week and a half. We're, we're nowhere near the peak of the virus. Britain's well off where Italy is, and and Britain was even slower than Italy in taking action. So this is, in my view, this is an escalating crisis. We're only just at the start of it. It's it's going to take many more more actions on behalf of government to to get control of it. I think they're going to have to look at things, for example, um, like price controls. Because if if, if you monetize the economy... But production collapses, you get inflation, you get price bubbles in the economy. 
So what, what are they going to do about that? They have to stop uh, supermarkets and things like that raising the price. Basically, capitalism is breaking down. That's that's my analysis of the, of the situation. Capitalism can't withstand the pandem- uh, pandemic. The state has to take control and basically create command the economy, and that's what I think is happening. See, okay. just for our listeners, technical point, what do you mean by monetizing the economy? Monetizing it in the sense that capital is is taking its money out of the system, right? It's not paying wages. It's it's extracting its all its money, public tax havens, right? And in in, in its place, the state is 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 basically introducing lots and lots of new money, and that it's creating, and he's using that to pay wages. So it's basically saying we will underwrite the whole economy. The state will underwrite the whole economy um, until until capitalism can get back on its feet again. Uh, I think I think that that's what Rishi Sunak's trying to say. It's it makes sense, but he's not going far enough. He's going to have to take much more uh, action than he has to, to keep the thing going. Let me just raise one more thing, right? Because I don't think anyone's thinking about this. The virus is now spreading to Latin America, Africa, right? You're going to get a second. You're going to get a second wave of collapse uh, in those countries who have even weaker health systems. So this is a global crisis all at once. It's not like it's it's not like um, it's not like it's only happening in a certain part part of the world. So global supply chains are under threat. I I, I wouldn't make any predictions about politics in the future. Any predictions at this point about politics in the future? I'm going to have to see where this crisis goes because it's got a long long way to go down. In my view, we're only at the start. Can I respond to that? Yeah, go on. Yeah, because um, actually I don't necessarily disagree with anything Ben just said there at all. The only thing I would question is whether we're ever going to be in a situation where the mainstream societal left, what you might call the centre left, the star, the Starmers, the Sturgeons and so on, are they ever going to get together the agency to be able to preempt where this crisis goes? Because it seems to me that is unlikely, like, especially when we've got very little capacity to organise street movements and so on, which in earlier eras would have provided a basis to push some of these reformist leaders to take action. By contrast, I kind of get the feeling that they are very much like the way that they responded to 2008. It's like a rabbit in the headlights type response. All of the agency seems to lie with the right wing and with elements um, strongly allied with the capitalist class. And the other forces just simply don't seem to know what to do and are constantly behind the curve. I don't think that's going to end either. And I think uh, Expecting that, like, just the severity of crisis is going to eventually create openings. What I think the last 10, 20 years has proven to us is the extent of crisis only matters to an extent. You also have to think about the question of who is responding, who is agency, um, and whether they have the audacity to introduce the measures at the right time in order to make a response. And that's why I have my doubts about the centre-left uh, as a whole. So, so you're going to make a wee point about this, right? Because there's, there's there's a way to... I think there's a way we need to be thinking about that crisis of the centre-left, right? Which is that a, an argument needs to be had. Uh, an argument needs to be had within the, the, the broad left where... I'll give you a perfect example. 
Rishi Sunak just making that um, uh, announcement there cast my mind back to late last year when there were people on the Labour left saying, yes, it's true that John McDonnell uh, is um, blunting Labour's economic policy. Yes, it's true that he's reaching out to the Remain lobby. Yes, it's true he's reconciling with um, the City of London when they started to curb some of their kind of, you know, tax the bosses type um, policies. Um, and people on the Labour left even were saying, oh, come on, this is Gramscian. This is, um, you know, there's some form of class collaboration is necessary. Coming up with these sort of guff uh, uh, arguments for this sort of thing, right? You know, did you really think that we were going to bring policies this radical into power? You, there has to be compromise. Every movement requires compromise, blah, 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 blah. Right. Now the Tory party has just embarked on a series of reforms far, far, far more profound than even the most radical version of Corbyn's policies. People who have that kind of attitude who are in the left, what James is calling the institutional left, need to be told to go away. Like, I mean, there's literally no point in you being around anymore. Uh, David, I think we should say, in fairness, when the Remainers said that there would be a massive collapse of food and medicine... They were right. They were correct. They were they correct. Were correct. They just weren't correct for the reason that they thought they would be, right? Um, so, but no, but seriously, I think that... The, if, if, I think people, people who view themselves on the left as quote-unquote pragmatists... Uh, and view that as some kind of uh, virtue, uh, need to be told to learn or disappear because we we are in a totally new world now. And it's not just new in the sense that governments are willing to adopt more pragmatic economic policies with state intervention. The language of politics is going to change profoundly and in, and in um, dangerous, potentially quite dangerous uh, uh, directions. What the Chancellor was saying there, dishing out moral dictums to the country, is a sign that we are returning to a very different order of capitalist society. The postmodern era is over. The era where politics is administrative, they're governing the void, and then underneath politics is a pluralistic, differentiated society where people can choose their own morality and their own lifestyles and stuff like that. That's all coming to an end. I don't think that we should just view this as a change in economic policy. This is a profound cultural change in democracy. The state now determines not only what you get paid, the state also determines what your moral code should be. Um, so people on the left who are still faffing around with, you know, postmodern philosophy, um, Eurocom, Gramsci, Guff, right? Get to fuck, right? <laughs> you, you no longer live in that world. You, you live very much in the modern rather than postmodern world. There's a ton to modernism. Um, but so, yeah, I think, I think we have to view that as a point of conflict within the left. I don't think it's, I mean, it's true right now we can't go out in the streets. It's true true right now we are actually quite restrained uh, in what we can do. That situation won't last forever. The, the, we're, let's remember, Ben's right, we can't underestimate the fact that we're still getting hit by the virus and infections are still increasing and deaths are still increasing. But a lot of people in society have not clocked yet that the impact, that the crisis... Um, will long outlive the virus itself, will long outlive the contagion. That's not what we're discussing here. We're discussing the, the 2020s is going to be defined. 
Like this is the start of a new yeah. uh, political and economic era. Let's just say that you're locked down for three or four months, right? Um, and a great depression is raging in your country. You can't go out and protest. Um, you can't earn a living. You're totally relying on a subsidy from the state, right? Um, what do you do? If, 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 for, if, for example, your basic necessities aren't being met, if you can't access food, if you can't access, if your electricity gets cut, how do you take action? The, the, the control, this is the scary thing about this situation. There's so much power in the hands of the state. The state is in control of the situation all over the place. And the problem is, this is a really scary thing. Our state doesn't, it, it, it's not, this is unprecedented, this, these sorts of controls. It doesn't know what to do with these sorts of controls. It doesn't know how to use these sorts of controls. In some ways, it's more dangerous right now. I mean, look at China. In China, because they have quite a, a, a strong, centralised, authoritarian state, they were able to crush this virus within two months. There's less people died in China um, than in Italy, right? And China has a population maybe 20 times bigger than Italy. Western capitalist society is not ready for this. It's not ready in the slightest. Uh, and it's gonna, we're putting a lot of hands in the state in the situation of the Great Depression. And it's an extremely, extremely dangerous situation. Not even into that much into the future. In the next, the next three to six months are extremely dangerous. Surely there is going to be a response from a lot of people looking for some sort of authority in and amongst this crisis. And it's only the extent to which the societal mainstream left can make some sort of intervention that's ahead of the curve that is projecting more authority than the right wing and the conservative government. It's only that that is going to create opportunities for us to be able to undermine the authority of the likes of Sunak and Johnson. I I, I disagree with that. I mean, if if we... If we are relying on Keir Starmer to create the openings for us, we are fucked. But it's, it's never been... There are more radical impulses on the left are much more marginal, right? The question is, how are they going to materialise given the set of circumstances that we're under? Where the traditional leftist tactics of, you know, very much offline, public meetings, demonstrations, all those sorts of things, even trade unions become that bit much, uh, that much more difficult under the circumstances of lockdown or pseudo lockdown that we're likely to face. Yeah, but I, I think it is worth repeating again, though, that those conditions of lockdown will only not last a few months mm-hmm. and we are talking about, I think, a, a decade-long crisis. Possibly, right? yeah. I mean, I, I think if there's a practical answer to that that I'm not necessarily well-equipped to provide, I think it's important that to what extent it can be done, the networks of resistance have to be constructed in the period of the, the lockdown or whatever we're calling it, that they can then respond quickly. It will also, by the, by the way, become a serious political conflict over when mass manifestations become socially acceptable. I guarantee you the state will tell people that demonstrations are not acceptable for a long time. Yes. Um, yes. yes. So we need to be in a position to make arguments around that. There'll come a time, it hasn't come yet, obviously, there will come a time where we have to make the argument that political uh, action 
mass political action is more important for human health than uh, avoiding contagion. And that's an argument that will eventually uh, arrive. But certainly, there's not going to be any leadership coming from... Sturgeon, Starmar. A point on Sturgeon as well, by the way, because we've not really talked about the situation mm-hmm. in Scotland. The Scottish government has been a couple of steps behind the UK government the, the yeah. entire way. And now I understand that even as we're recording this podcast, Sturgeon is making an announcement. I, yeah, I think she has. Like I was trying to find out exactly what it was she's saying. She's caught up with Boris Johnson, uh, I take it. <laughs> right. So, so just before Boris Johnson, about an hour before Johnson and Sunak made their announcement, Sturgeon went on TV and urged people again not to go out to bars and clubs and restaurants. But she did not announce the shutdown. So once again, uh, the more kind of statist action has been taken by Boris Johnson. Uh, it really does show you, as you, uh, as you were saying, James, the, the crisis of self-confidence that the centre-left has as well. It doesn't think it has the right to, 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 to engage in, the, in these kind of uh, radical policies. In the last few weeks, there really hasn't been a Scottish government. There's been an administration yeah. for the British government in Scotland. It's just a wing of the British government in Scotland. That's all there's been. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you something else. that The new finance minister, Katie Forbes, Kate Forbes, Kate Forbes. Kate Forbes. tweeted, so a, a hotel in Scotland uh, sacked their workers and also made some of their workers effectively homeless because they get, they get accommodation at the hotel. She, she tweeted them. She, she went on Twitter and said she was disappointed that they'd in, it behaved this way. Uh, and you just think you're the finance minister, you know. Th- this is this is the state of centre left politics all over the West right now. There are people, including people in positions of power, going around telling their Twitter followers that they are disappointed by companies sacking workers in, in the middle of a huge crisis of capitalism. It's totally pathetic and useless. And we can't. The thing is, uh, we can't just say, well, this means we have no inroads because that means we are giving them authority that they don't deserve. Yeah, I think people are going to look back, historians are going to look back and say, see this last week. This may well be the week where Nicola Sturgeon fundamentally blew it for the whole cause of Scottish independence in a lot of ways. Because there was this huge opportunity where Boris Johnson had taken precisely the wrong set of uh, measures. Remember, they were talking about herd immunity and all this sorts of mm. stuff only last week. I mean, we were still talking about it last Friday. Like, and then by Monday, there was that report came out from King's College, I believe, suggesting this was going to lead to 250,000 bloody deaths. And at this point, the whole uh, centre of gravity shifted. But for the last couple of weeks, Labour and the SNP had this huge opportunity to undermine Boris Johnson's authority, and they didn't take it. And you're right, it's it's this crisis of self-confidence on the centre-left, coupled with, I think, the overhang of uh, neoliberalism. Because in a way, I think the right wing, politically, always used neoliberalism instrumentally. Because the centre-left is so dominated by professionalism, the professional managerial class, and so on, they are obsessed with looking you know, scientific and appealing to the authority of mainstream economics and so on. So to an extent, they are more addicted to the 
market as being the solution when it comes down to pragmatic moments of crisis like this than the right wing are. And that is, I think, why they have been so frozen when it comes to responding. And I do think like it is... There will be opportunities for more radical, potentially revolutionary politics to grow, uh, for properly socialist politics to start having a voice again in society. But we're always going to come up against the difficulty of the fact that the centre-left, we need a strong centre-left ultimately to be able to push for power. And the centre-left is so fundamentally lacking in authority, in intellectual command, and in organisation, and in virtually every, every single respect, that it is going to be difficult for any sort of leftism to come near power uh, at any point in the immediate future. Can I, can I make three points about the, the politics of, of this crisis? The first is about resistance, because I think this is really important. People are going to be looking for uh, people who, for example, people have to pay their rent uh, in this situation, but aren't, aren't earning money. Um, what are they going to do? They're either going to have to dip into savings, they're going to have to loan from friends or whatever, uh, or, or they're going to be evicted. Um, there's quite a lot of power suddenly. If you hold up during a pandemic, where people, where landlords are not going to want to come round to your house and drag you out and throw you out the house, right? There's quite, there's suddenly quite a lot of uh, power for people to organise from their homes from a lockdown situation, a rent strike, because we're not going to pay um, because we're not earning, um, and what are you going to do about it? You, you're a landlord in a pandemic, and I'm in the house. You're not going to be able to throw me out. That's one thing. Two, number two, we need to argue um, that capitalism's fallen apart and the state has to take charge, make sure everyone has food, make sure all the essentials of life are provided for everyone. NHS capacity needs to be ramped up. That means you need to take control of productive uh, parts of the economy um, to produce ventilators, to produce masks. It's a disgrace that doctors and nurses are doing their work without being tested, without wearing the, the, the yeah. proper equipment or falling sick. The NHS in, uh, in Scotland is going to be overwhelmed in no time at all. It's going to be a humanitarian catastrophe, quite, quite probably. Um, there's urgent things that we need to be pressing for um, and, and demanding. I do think there's a point to be made about... Um, I agree with James about the agency thing. You don't have as much agency um, in a in, in a lockdown situation. I do think there's things you can do though, like a kind of campaign, won't pay um, a, a campaign. But I do think that the system that we have, people are going to be questioning whether this can continue. How can this be allowed to happen? How are we so incapable of organising all the wealth we've got? Um, how are we so incapable of organising ourselves? to prepare for something like this in a way that protects lives. Hundreds of thousands of people are going to be, um, are, are, probably more than hundreds of those people in the UK are going, to, are going to suffer a lot from this. This is a great depression. We're talking about millions of people. Let's be honest about it. Millions of people are going to suffer because of this. And millions of people, even more many millions of people are going to be questioning whether this is a good way to organise society. So there is fundamental questions about the system. Agency, yes, we need to talk about agency, we need to talk about political parties, the centre-left's not capable, it doesn't know what it's doing um, and all that. But let's not lose sight of the fact that capitalism's just fallen apart. 
that I think it's important to, to register that. I mean, I think it's crucial to repeat over and over and over again the idea that this crisis in capitalism will be paid for by the majority of the population. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that people can't pay their rents. What's happening now is that landlords are increasing rents in mm-hmm. some areas because the knock-on effect is coming down the chain. So landlords are then starting to hike up rents because of the knock-on impact on their profits essentially mm-hmm. or like their own debts that they have i mean we know there's loads of landlords who buy up houses to flip them so that they can rent them out as airbnbs or whatever so i suppose what i'm trying to say is like we make the argument all the time about who pays for crises and i think we just need to keep saying it over and over again that the people who will pay are the people who are necessary to tackle the pandemic. And for me, that's like the fundamental contradiction here. When that list of key workers came out and it was teachers, nurses, supermarket shelf stackers, like these are essential people who have been treated like dirt, Mm. have been treated like absolute dirt, particularly since 2008, but for much longer in some cases. I just like... When I saw that, I was like, well, we've been saying that these people are key workers. They're essential to the functioning of the economy generally. But see, in this time of crisis, it is those people that we need. And what happens to a large chunk of the population when you have been ground down over a period of 10 years, mm-hmm. like in the public sector? Do you know I mean civil servants is another essential group, like ultimately like the most hidden of a lot of the like public sector operations who have been demonized mm-hmm. and had their pay slashed. Wages have been suppressed for 10 years mm-hmm. in the civil service to the point where you make more money working in a call center than you do for HMRC. So Sunak comes on, makes his big speech, makes his big announcement, thanks the Department for Work and Pensions and Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. And the TUC. <laughs> and the TUC. <laughs> but like particularly like those groups of DWP and HMRC workers have had the worst wage decline of any sector. They've actually lost more than the, the rest of the public sector. Mm-hmm. They're going to be the essential workers to deliver the tax breaks, to deliver the increase in welfare systems but there is a collective there's a despondency because these worker groups of workers have been degraded for such a long time so the contradiction essentially that i see ben's outlined like the kind of duality of the crisis there's an economic crisis and the pandemic and them operating at the same time you have this contradiction in the middle i realize right now i'm doing that dialectic hand you just a dialectic hand yeah Yeah. oh no (laughs) so I will post a picture of dialectic hand. Well, you do it all the time, Ben. You, you do it all the time. Um, you don't realise it. It's like whenever like uh, a Marxist starts talking about contradictions, they do this like little gesture that like is the. Dialectic. It looks like you're changing a light bulb. It's like yeah, like your thumb and index finger. Yeah, twisting. But this contradiction about these workers. Is it like what? Sorry. No, no, you do it with one hand because um, because you're you're articulating the dialectic with your hand. I did the fake tits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
we maybe we'll post the article about the left wing Le- hand, left wing hand, hand gestures. The militant do cutting the bread. Cutting the bread, yeah. yeah. Talk, like it's a hand gesture. You, you can you can tell sect by uh, by the hand gestures. See, just to pick up on that point of the people who are already suffering, because I don't think this is well understood. By the way, it's also like. It, it, it will be very interesting to see how an austerity-starved state deals with its new role as state, as economic and moral guardian of the working class, right? It'd be very interesting to see how that's translated. And it should be said, if you are the, a person who argues that austerity is necessary, was necessary, you can argue that, or you can argue that we need state capitalism now to stave off this economic crisis, but you can't possibly have argued for both of those things. But see... See, in some corners, there are lefties just jumping up and down and being like, we won the argument. You know, people going around saying, Labour won the argument. First of all, Labour isn't getting any brownie points for this. I'm sorry. Also, we won the argument against against markets and the, the state has a role and so on. I just, I mean, it's useless as, as, as an intellectual exercise, but let's be quite clear about what's actually concretely happening right now, which is that the, the working class, as you say, is already getting completely shafted. I'll tell you about a couple of things that are just going on in Scotland, zero about it in the media. In both Glasgow and Edinburgh, and I presume many, many other council authorities around the country, essential care services are being withdrawn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Care is consolidating to essential cases. So tons of disabled people who otherwise were having care needs met by home carers and stuff like that have just had all those people uh, withdrawn. Um, so that's a, that, another way in which it's happening. Renters, as you say, uh, there are whole industries where uh, uh, precarious contracts mean mean that people are just being dumped willy-nilly. As you said, Ben, uh, those people are not necessarily covered by the government's, uh, what the government's uh, just said. Uh, around the world... Supermarkets are uh, hiking prices in response to panic buying, uh, which is just, is a is a beautiful market response to human desperation. Uh, prices are going through the roof uh, because they are trying to profit out of people's desperate attempts to buy toilet paper and pasta and soap. Um, so we should we should bear that in mind that this is already causing utter carnage. I was my mind was blown when I saw those figures about uh, about uh, fourteen million workers in the United States. The, the shock of the human suffering is very real, and that psychological impact, by the way, is another important factor in all this. We can't know just how this is being received all yeah. over the world. I think that that's really important. Um, because I think that there's lots of evidence about how societies change politically and what happens when societies suffer a collective trauma. What is happening right now is a collective trauma, Mm. right? So there will be, people will lose loved ones. Mm -hmm. People are going to die. We know Mm -hmm. that. People that are close to us will maybe die, get very sick, be kept in harrowing conditions because the system is going to be so overstretched. There will be healthcare workers who have actually never dealt with, I mean, who has who would have dealt with this level of death before? Hmm. So we're actually talking there is going to be a massive psychological break for a lot of people and society is going to suffer a collective trauma and that can politically that can go one of two ways Hmm. collective trauma can like give birth to like much better systems of organizing society or it can lead down a very very dark road there's a a few more things to talk about i think i want to what i want to know is 
Ben is on his fifth day of lockdown. Yeah. Um. So Ben, see the lockdown in the Basque Country. How has that been enforced? Well, actually, that's a that's a very interesting point. One of the one of the interesting things about the Spanish state's response to this, um, which speaks to the history, the, the particular history of the Spanish state, is the first thing they did is they sent the military in everywhere. So before, I mean, Spain, the rate of increase of um, of coronavirus in, is the fastest rate of increase in the world is in Spain, right? So it's doing the least best at suppressing this virus. The, the, the thing they reacted quickly to was to say, we need to get the military in all parts of the country. So they sent the military to the Basque country, they sent, sent the military um, to, to, to Catalonia. And there's been quite a lot of arrests of people, you know, people going for a walk or whatever mm-hmm. um, uh, and breaking the, breaking the lockdown. So that, that military aspect. Now, remember who the government is in Spain. The government is a centre-left and left coalition of PSOE, the historic centre-left party, and Podemos, the, the, the anti-austerity party that emerged out of, um, out of the anti-austerity movement at the, at the start of 2010. Um, so y- you can see how uh, states, even one governed by left parties, and let's hopefully do a better job than the Tories, are responding in repressive, in repressive ways. Now, there obviously is a need to lock down um, the country because you need to suppress the virus. But what comes first? The health service comes first. And they, in Spain, has totally messed this up. In the town I live in, in Onyati, um, the first death uh, it, it has happened, an 87-year-old woman. She was in hospital um, for a different disease and she contracted it from a nurse. And there's been no testing of nurses and doctors. You can see how even people who look after themselves, they stay, they do the social distancing, they isolate themselves, they need to go to the hospital for another illness and contract it from a nurse. The same thing's going to happen in Scotland and the UK, by the way. They're not, they're not doing testing, they're not being systemically tested on, on, on nurses and doctors. So there's a human tragedy unfolding um, in, 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 in Spain. Um, the lockdown... You know what the atmosphere is, uh, is? It's kind of strange because there's, there's a slight kind of people are trying to have a kind of sense of humour about it, you know? Um, to be honest, it feels a little bit like things I've read in history books about the start of fir- the First World War where people where the people are quite jovial at, 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 at this, like, the what's the word I'm looking for? The, um, the novelty, uh, the novelty of the situation where you're locked up at home and don't have to go to work and that sort of thing. Everyone's doing like Netflix and hanging out. Yeah, exactly, doing Instagram pictures and stuff like that. Uh, I don't think people really uh, are grasping the extent of this crisis and how bad it's going to be. I mean, already health services are getting overrun. Like in Madrid, they're having to make decisions between looking after younger people and older people with coronavirus because they don't have enough nurses and doctors to look after both. That's the sort of crisis we're talking about. It's not even at the peak. The government even admits it's not even that close to the peak yet in Spain. Um, so the, it, 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 we, I know we've talked a lot about the economics here, but just the, the public health crisis itself it is severe. It is really severe. It's like it's going to be a traumatic thing for all societies that suffer, especially because 
Western societies have failed miserably to protect their citizens. Western states have failed miserably to protect their citizens. Yeah, I, I should just say for a bit of kind of colour, um, I walked uh, through part of town to uh, to to do this podcast, um, and uh, there's a very strange atmosphere abroad. Actually. Uh, as I came closer to the town centre, things were a bit more subdued and deserted. But where I live in the south side, everything's carrying on as normal. There's a lot of people drinking in the park today. The pubs are full. Um, the supermarkets are, are, are stripped bare, particularly of booze. Uh, my local Sainsbury's, all the beer, all the wine, all the spirits has all been confiscated, <laughs> requisitioned by the public uh, to go and get rat asked. It has a very kind of uh, uh, that uh, kind of last days of Rome sort of feel about it. I suppose that's a, um, a, a kind of natural social reaction to the stress of the situation, the peculiarity of the situation. A lot of people are are enjoying it. I mean, as I was walking around in, in my part of the south of Glasgow, people are talking about it and laughing and, and um, you know, sort of... Um, uh, like I say, sort of giddy uh, because of how peculiar and, and how changed everything is. Um, a lot of kids were bunking off school a day early. I dare say no one's paying any attention to that and, and hanging about and all the rest. So um, I think that the the extent of the, uh, the seriousness of the situation is still just landing in Britain. I think it's a very different situation to where you are in, in Spain, Ben. And that is partly because of how poorly coordinated and communicated the government strategy on containing the virus has been so far. Um, there was people were saying, and I assume that it's true that the reason that the government held off on clo- on um, ordering the closure of small businesses is that that would then cause those small businesses would then have the right to cash in from their insurance companies. And that would have meant uh, possibly insurance companies liquidating because, you know, that's more, everyone claiming all at once is more than the value they have on their books. So there are already decisions being taken. Um, to protect big business, and that has had an impact on the on the uh, the measures. There's also, I think, been a very extensive attempt not to spook the markets. Not yeah. that that's having any effect whatsoever, um, but I think that. Um, uh, I, I uh, we were talking about whether or not London would go into lockdown, and Kat, you were saying you think that there's a cultural barrier to that. That countries like Spain and Italy, uh, and indeed France, where, by the way, Macron's <laughs> the police are, are going wild. They're also arresting a lot of people. Um, but these are countries that have historical experiences of uh, state intervention that are somewhat more profound, particularly during the dictatorships, of course, than um, in Britain. But I also think the reason that they're not going to close London is because it's the global financial hub and they're terrified of the psychological impact that will have on the markets. Um, I think that they will hold off and hold off for as long as they can on measures like that. But I assume that means that the the coronavirus is going to spread quite relatively widely in, in, in British society. But we won't really know because people haven't been tested. I think they're now introducing more tests, but we're not going to really... It's quite hard to calculate. So I tried calculating like the percentages of cases relative to the... No, but you were going to know when people were dropping down sick. 
That's the thing. The, the no, lack of but, we, but we don't. Means, we, means lack of preparation. But we lack don't know if, if people are sick because they only get sick when they start showing the symptoms, right? But people yeah. are infectious much longer yeah. than that. So it's the incubation period, which is not clear at all. Yeah. Like I've heard n- numerous different scenarios from five days up to 80 days <laughs> mm. of like how long you can be infectious for. Some people are being told stay in for 12 weeks. Others it's two weeks. Some people are a week. So there's like lots of different and unclear information out there. Like, I mean, I think that, you know, my friend works in the Royal Infirmary. Um, she hasn't been tested. Like yeah. they're not the frontline staff aren't being tested. I mean, never mind anybody else being yeah. tested. So it's it's actually like I wonder if the UK is like the lowest testing. I think it's one. On. Of, it must be one of. I it mean, must I- be one of them in Europe. So basically, I'm pretty convinced. Like. I know that it is really dumb to make predictions about anything at the moment, but I don't, I cannot see there being a military style lockdown in the UK. Like there has been elsewhere in Europe. And then there's a particular like historical, political and cultural dynamic to that, which is about the history of either like revolutionary upsurges or military dictatorships or like military governments. So Spain, Italy, Germany, uh, France. Like you have these countries where they have a very different um, national fabric to them. Like there's a very different cultural identity. What's much more likely to happen in Britain, and I think that played out tonight, is this idea of like us Brits, we know who we are. We are kind to each other. And being kind right now means staying indoors. Like that's an act of kindness. Do you know what I mean? And I think the way that it's been framed is very much in that like soft or banal British nationalism of keep calm and carry on. Boris Johnson's been doing this the whole time. Like that's one of the only things that's been consistent in his message is about maybe one of the options is to just take it on the chin. Mm. Old chap. Do you know what I mean? Like that's the that's the kind of rhetoric that he's been using. So I I think that there are historical reasons that that's very unpalatable for the Tories in particular. I also think it's a, to be honest, a deeply unpopular measure privately. So I think that there are people who probably feel like a lockdown is the right thing to do, but maybe people think a lockdown is the right thing to do on day one. And then on day three and maybe on day five, but by day 20, mm. 25, like people will start to have very different views about that. Mm. And I think it's, if you're a populist politician, I think that that's part of the calculation that you make. I, I, I agree with all that, but I think it's... I've got one sorry. more piece of working. The lockdowns aren't working. The lockdowns aren't actually having a beneficial effect. Italy has been on lockdown for near two weeks now and the death rate is soaring. Like the there is a huge delay period of from when and Spain, you mentioned it before, like I think the fastest growing rate of cases. So there's not a lot of like narrative evidence out there to say that look we locked down for two weeks and the number of suspected cases began to drop none of that is there i just like there's a couple of things you look at right because i'm happy to be dissuaded of this position but that's my work 
the, the lockdowns in themselves won't do it, but the lockdowns in combination with mass testing, again, understanding where the virus is in the country, who has it, where the hotspots are. That's what China and South Korea did. They really controlled the situation. They tested, 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 tested nurses and doctors all the time, understanding where the virus is spreading to, containing it. That's what suppressed the virus, and that's not what Western societies are doing. The yeah. best the best country uh, in Europe right now is Germany. Mm-hmm. And the reason why Germany is the best country is because it's doing testing, testing, testing. It's testing all the time. It understands where the virus is. The UK abandoned testing. They, they, they didn't test people when they first started getting spreading the virus. To be honest, I'm glad I'm here. Even though Spain's going at a faster rate, I'm, it's to me it's terrifying in London. Um, they're going to keep London basically open because it's a global financial centre. It said that in Financial Times, that we can't shut down London as a global financial centre. The, the virus has been spread all over London in housing, in, in housing estates especially where people are really close to each other. Like, the, the, if you don't test and if you don't keep people socially away from other people, the virus spreads. That, that's, that's the way it works and it, it reaches to the most vulnerable people in society. It, a lot of people won't obviously won't need to go to hospital, but for every young person that gets it, you know, if they're in contact with an old person, then they get it, and then they need to go to hospital. Like it's yeah. it, to me the, the situation in Britain is is tragic because the I, I actually think I actually totally agree with you with the culture thing, but I'd add one other thing. I also think it's an arrogance that the British establishment have mm-hmm. where they looked at China and South Korea and they thought, well, these Asian countries, we're going to do it our own way. And they based their idea on herd immunity on a theoretical model of a different disease. Yeah. It's almost like neo, um, neoclassical economics. Where the economic system is based not on the practice of capitalism, not on the actual experience of capitalism, but on a theoretical idea of what capitalism would be like um, when written down in equations by, by economists. My point, Ben, though, is not that that's the not locking down. is. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a lockdown, right? But what I'm saying is, like, I cannot see it happening. So in tonight's announcement, when Boris Johnson opened the press conference, mm. he said, I know this goes against our freedom-loving instinct or something, or, like liberty or something like that. I can't remember the exact words, but he referenced that specifically. So we're not going to have testing on the scale of Germany because we're so late to the game, right? That's So we're not going to have that. So surely they must make a calculation about what a lockdown means for that their political interests longer term and its effectiveness. So yeah. if they're if you're not testing, a lockdown is not effective, and a lockdown is deeply unpopular. Like in the you know that's like I was saying, maybe in the first week people might find it quite novel, but after 10, 15 days, people are going to start to really suffer. I think. Mm-hmm. The other point to say is though, like um, we moved away from the herd immunity idea relatively quickly because I mean it. it what collapsed was the assumption that our health and social services could in any way uh, function with the level of intake that we were likely to get if we went along um, with a completely laissez-faire model. This is where we're talking about 
somewhere between 250 and half a million deaths, in large part just because our health service just wouldn't have the beds, the respirators, any of the facilities to be able to cope with yeah. the amount of people that would be coming in. However, given that we're going for this halfway uh, house approach, some part of the initial theoretical model might well be correct in the sense that if you halfway shut everything down without the testing, etc., etc., for three months and then, well, what do we say? Okay, now... We're going to reopen everything again and try and return to normal. It might well just start spreading again. Well, that that's already been modelled in. That's already expected that there will be a second wave it's, after initial measures and then, But this is going to keep going on. Well, right? there was a point like that. It was uh, Philippa Whitford made on Newsnight last night where she was like, "This is exactly the same rhetoric as get Brexit done." Mm. And it is. Mm. Let's get coronavirus done in twelve weeks. <laughs> we will be we will be out of coronavirus, yes. and it's not going to work like that. No, no, no. And this is, I think, another reality we have to prepare for because we're talking about well, is there going to be a couple of months of the most extreme measures, or is there going to be six months of the most extreme measures? We have to recognise that we're probably in this phase of the crisis for a, for about a year and a half, for about eighteen months, which is to say that this is probably. You know, basically what it looks like. I'm not going to make any hard and fast predictions. There will be a period, probably up until some point in the summer, where there are very hard measures being enforced. Perhaps that will include lockdowns of some cities. Perhaps it won't. I tend to think that catch right to the extent that the British state will hold off on that kind of lockdown measure for as long as they can. But they may actually be forced to do it depending on how aggressive the spread of the the disease is. So that's the first phase leading up until about summer. There's then a second phase where there's still significant control uh, of movements of activity leading up uh, until some point in winter, at which point uh, all the scientists are modeling there will be a a return uh, of the contagion probably in about November. Um, we don't. One of the things that needs to be said about coronavirus at this point is we don't actually know a lot about the disease. So it was said at first, for example, that um, uh, once you've had it, you are immune to it. We now know that people have recontracted it. It was said that you could not um, pass on um, the disease to a, a baby if you are pregnant. There have been babies born with coronavirus. By the way, that piece of advice was circulated, as far as I understand, on the basis of a survey of nine women who were pregnant and had coronavirus. So that, that tells you the extent of the problem and information that we've got here. There just isn't a stable body of information about coronavirus. That said, we're expecting... A, and, and one of the things that we don't know about coronavirus, by the way, is how... Um, how affected it is by things like climate. So there's been some speculation that the reason that it's struggling in Latin America and Africa so far is because of the difference in climate and that it's a a disease that does relatively well as some diseases do in more more moist and and cold climates. Um, And the pattern of its spread would seem to suggest that up to a certain point, then again, it could just be that it just hasn't arrived yet in Africa and Latin America. Um, In any case... And then, no, we don't know. So, in, but so, so, so we don't know. But in any case, it's government's approach, though. Like, if you don't know, then what do you do? You take the safest possible approach and suppress the fuck out of the virus. 
Yeah. Don't take chance on a herd immunity thing that you don't even know is going to work. You don't even know if people are going to be immune. Yeah, but that's 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 been abandoned as far as I know. And at first it was just rhetorically abandoned. I think it's probably being abandoned as a strategy. So anyway, there's then a, the, the disease then returns at some point in winter. There are perhaps then a ramping up of measures again. You're then into winter early of 2021. Um, and then you may be looking at a longer term uh, uh, easement of that situation. Now, we don't know for certain. That's the modelling that's going on right now. But if people think that even this first phase of the crisis is like, uh, we Brits are going to huddle together over the next couple of months and we're gonna we're gonna get through this, as as Kat was saying, let's get Corona done. We're gonna we're gonna muscle through and uh, pop out the other end. Things will return to normal. I'll tell you, I, I happen to know that um, one of the things that Boris Johnson has been most spanked for by ruling circles in the Conservative Party and the business elite was when in one of the early press conferences, he said that there was, no quotes, no reason to think that the world economy would not come roaring back, in his words, um, as soon as the virus dissipates. That's definitely not the case. It is definitely not the case that the economy is coming roaring back at, at, at any foreseeable point. Um, even after that 18-month period I talked about, where we're still dealing with the presence of coronavirus you know, in society before any vaccine might be found or any more lasting solution. Like We are living, I think, with this disease for a much longer period of time than we are being uh, prepared for by the media. Everything is pitched on whether we can get some sort of like cure or immunization or uh, whatever it happens to be. I think there's actually like, you know, controversially, I will say that there is an element, and this is where I have a slight disagreement with the points of emphasis here. I think there's a slight element of truth in what Boris Johnson is saying in the sense that I do think that for capitalism to recover some of its um, laggard lack of growth it's had over the period, it does need a fundamentally destructive crisis. But there are um, there are elements of this to do with the scale of the public health uh, emergency. And while the corona uh, virus is still spreading, that means that economic growth won't be able to recover. So the public health emergency and the economic crisis, depression, whatever you want to call it, they are fundamentally interconnected and they are kind of pulling each other down. Um, and I do agree with you that this is going to last much longer uh, than a lot of people might be expecting. I made the mistake the other night of watching Contagion. <laughs> I've been watching zombie films. Ben, have you seen Contagion? Yeah, it's all terrible, yeah. Yeah, I don't recommend watching it just now. Um, so, I mean, how are you holding up, like, on day five in terms of your sanity? I mean, obviously, <laughs> listeners will make their I'm own not, conclusions. I'm the best person in the Basque Country to ask about that because my normal routine is, uh, is quite intensively focused on being indoors and on the laptop. <laughs> so not... My experience of reality is not that much different from what we usually have, <laughs> other than the fact that um, there's this huge global crisis going on. I don't think I think I'm getting on the nerves of the people I'm I'm living with a little bit um, in that sense. Um, but I know that lots of people in the Basque Country are really struggling already because Basque society is very outdoors. They love going walks. They love going mountaineering. 
and for them to be, uh, and they love socialising as well with, with each other, to be stuck indoors for two weeks is a psychological trauma for, for them. And I know people already who are really who are really struggling with that. It's difficult for me to understand that. Cause I can stay I can stay indoors for weeks on end and I'm not like that bored. So I've got some good books, you know. Um, but other folk here really struggle with that. This is an interesting point as well, which is, um, I mean, I've, I've seen, for example, there was an interesting interview um, on BBC 24 with someone uh, who uh, works with people with dementia. And uh, she was saying, and this is true of many uh, uh brain illnesses but also mental health conditions and so on which is what what they were saying was there's a real problem in that when you reduce uh social interaction it's one of the things known to accelerate things like degenerative um, memory conditions and things like that that is also very very true of uh lots of mental health conditions and so on it's true of basically everything it's true of physical health as well the thing that we know about for example the aging process is um you know there's a classic syndrome where um uh in a long-term marriage one of the uh, members dies and the other uh dies not long afterwards because the health deteriorates very rapidly because of loneliness a loss of kind of social coherence a loss of a sense of their place in the world a loss of sense of identity and stuff like that i'm expecting for the psychological impact particularly if sort of lockdown measures are imposed uh to be very significant i know for example that mental health hotlines are uh overloaded by people phoning in having experiencing panic attacks and stuff like that so there's also there's also the interesting thing about that right? i think that's a really good point but i think there's, a, there's going to be a counter to that which is community organizing I think what you're going to see is lots and lots of communities suddenly realizing that the people around them are potentially lonely and on their own and organizing to get in touch with people, whether it's online or whatever, and, and community networks are going to build up. Now, I think what's going to happen is people are going to suddenly realize having relationships outside of capital, having relationships outside of commodity relations, just, just community relations, Right, we are just connecting with people to help them and support them are fundamentally healthy things to have. And I honestly think this might show up that folk are actually quite decent. Like it's, it's the system that makes people do nasty things and say nasty things about each other. It's the structures of society we have which makes people the way they are on Twitter and, and, and stuff like that. But if you put people in a situation where they, they need to help each other, I think you're going to find a community, a community spirit, the grassroots of society, which is outside of commodified relations. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I just come in on that because the first time that I like really, like the first time that I cried about the situation, because um, I think that to degree people are still in shock. Do you know we've all watched like disaster films and done the what would you do if like this happened like what would your plan be and everyone does those sort of like death scenarios in your head but now that this is actually real life like I think a lot of people are just kind of in a stage of shock or grief um about what's happening and the first thing that made me cry was that video of people singing Bella Ciao from their balconies in Italy and it's like this really beautiful moment where for no no transactional gain 
here is a group of people who don't, who possibly don't know each other, have never met, and they're all on their balconies, like singing to each other. And it's just this really beautiful moment of that spirit that you're talking about. Right. So it's actually, it's not material either. It's not people doing like hand to hand solidarity or delivering food. It's not those things. But there's something about it that's just very, like, beautiful in the human spirit. I mean, I think that there's a, I suppose it's this similar to the argument I was making about collective trauma in a population. Um, but I, my worry is that we are now too far gone down the route of disconnection as human beings, that we are too alienated now to really make that turnaround. Like that's, ge- that's genuinely my major worry. Like people have not only been degraded in work, but we have been completely atomized as a society and even more alienated in work than, than ever before. I mean, the degrees of alienation are like, you know, Jimmy Reed talked about this, but he could never have imagined what we work as now, how we sell our labor now, how we perform the self for public consumption on social media, day in, day out. And I do worry that, you know, the bounce back and like that idea of like community organizing and like human spirit, it will be there. But I don't know if we have just been too to ground down like take us take a place like scotland where drug deaths are rocking do you know what i mean like and there's lots of great work on addiction about that being part of lack of connection in society lack of relationships a lack of love like however you want to put that and i just worry that people have been like people have been like worn down for so long now um, and experienced so many crises that I just don't know to what extent we are able to to bounce back. I mean, maybe that's an incredibly pessimistic view. I'm a goth after all. Can I ask a question? Is anyone else having problems with their uh, boomer parents? Uh, my boomer parents will not do as they are told. They are going yes. on holiday uh, as we speak um, and they... You know, they are the most vulnerable, amongst the most vulnerable people, this generation. But on the other hand, they've got a mixture of a sort of anti-authoritarian sort of ethic um, that comes with the sort of post-60 generation of professional kind of liberal people. Um, On the other hand, because they've lived through a period of uh, rising opportunities, rising Mm. house prices, et cetera, et cetera, they just think that they're going to be okay all the time. And I found it's not just with my parents, but with people in authority on the left that are part of that generation and so on. They just refuse to accept that anything bad could be happening. And now that it is, they don't really know what to do. I've never believed in this kind of generational politics. I hated all that reprehensible, okay, boomer chat and so on. Yeah. I'm, the, the, I'm the person that's most against that sort of chat. Having said that, I think there is a boomer issue when it comes to this particular crisis and how it's unfolded. I think that that's true. I think I mentioned it on the last pod that people of our generation, so we're technically all millennials, although some of us more at the top end of that generational bracket. Um, So I think that it's obviously the definition of being a millennial is like kind of coming of age in the year 2000. Mm. Um, But I actually think that the more defining thing for people of our generation was like in 
the West certainly was 9-11. So there's loads of studies now about the psychological impact on people who were like in their teens when 9-11 happened. So you go from like being a teenager, 9-11 happens, the war happens, the dot-com bubble happens, the financial crisis happens. You know, you have these major shocks like where you have basically no stability, but you still have this recognition. Like there's a closeness to the baby boomer generation where you you know for certain that at one point those things were real for a different generation. So there's always been like this kind of like degree of hopefulness that I don't think exists in younger groups of people. Like, but I think that we have kind of like one foot in that boomer past, like the roaring 90s and everything's great and isn't the economy booming. And as my uh, pal Fee, friend of the pod, Fee, uh, messaged me, she was like, you know, in the 90s when we did recycling, because it was like... You know, cute and pandas and wildlife, not because like the planet was is actually being destroyed systematically. Like so there's this element of I think our generation where we're very close to a memory of stability and growth that was then rocked from 9-11 and everything that has happened afterwards, a series of catastrophes, which I think makes us quite a sort of a unique generation in a lot of ways. The Zoomers though, I mean, my... What's a Zoomer? It's Gen Z, that's what they're calling them now, Zoomers. The Zoomer, I mean, Zoomer means something different in Scotland, of course, but like uh, the generational Zoomers. And how old are Um, they? They'll be about 18 at the moment, 19. They're my students, right? And a lot of them weren't alive when uh, 9-11 happened. I mean, so they've known... And basically, they were about make seven, six, seven sort of age when the financial crisis hit. And often when I'm teaching, I kind of forget these people know absolutely nothing about... uh, You know nothing, young people. uh, About Iraq (laughs) or... I mean, the financial crisis for them is just reality. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that is what the world looks like. That's what the world is. I think we need to get a Zoomer on, right? Uh, there's, there's plenty of scope there for a joke yeah yeah. Um, because think about this right not only is financial crisis the only an, an anemic growth and debt the only version of capitalism that you have ever known you're about to enter your 20s also the 2020s and it's going to be a baptism of fire the likes of which if you look at the figures of the global economy right now if we were just to base it on that and we shouldn't it's worse than the Great Depression, right? The, 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 the 20s they are going to have is going to be incredibly intense, filled with conflict, filled with very profound ideological change. I mean, one of the things that's been true, the left hasn't really changed since 2008. Mm. The left that existed, in, there have been changes, Sanders, Corbyn, there have been reactions to developments, but its basic body of ideas um, a, a generally more interventionist state linked to a socially liberal um, uh, uh, a cultural platform, you know, a, a generally more uh, kind of humanitarian, but also kind of individualist, libertarian attitude to the way society should function. That was basically the idea, the ideas of the broad left in 2008. Also basically the ideas of the broad left inherited in a certain mutated form all the way back to 19 to 1968 yes yes now the changes that the left are going to experience um uh in in its ideological landscape and the ideological landscape that it, it has to uh 
refer to and reflect are going to be totally, totally different. So that's, and again, this is why I'm not, I'm not just sort of uh, exhausted by the stupidity of the centre left and its immediate response to the situation, because we are looking at a generational change, and we need to start thinking about that that uh, change and uh, talking about it. Um, but I um, I have also had this thing about um, <laughs> about older people and the the different the different stages at which information about this crisis has filtered on. It was true as well, though, that there was a large section of the population. But by the way, we see when we talk about rentals and stuff, we have to bear in mind. Tell me if I'm wrong, because I, you know, it's one of these statistics you hear from time to time, and it always kind of shocks me. Um, I was watching um, something about how mortgages are going to be impacted. Uh, I don't have a mortgage, I'm a renter. But I, but at one point, an economist said, let's just remember that m- people with mortgages are a minority of the population. 60% of the population owns their home outright, right? The difference in, um, th- you know, in the last 10 years between people who own a home outright, own an asset, an inflating asset, and large parts of the population who do not have that is a profound difference. How will this new crisis impact on those uh, social differentiations, those economic differentiations within um, the kind of the lower social orders, if you like, the kind of lower middle class, the working class, and so on. What what will be the different stages of that impact? Um, and I think it's hard to uh, it's hard to predict, but I think it will be it will be visible, and that also creates its own questions. How do you create a large social movement that can relate both to the sixty percent of people who own a house? And the much smaller number of people who rent, and who uh, will never own a house, and who will never own a house. Yeah, um, like these are all uh, sort of complex questions. Um, there is something I was going to say there. But oh, 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 sorry, you go. Well, I was gonna, I was just gonna like follow on from those points about like the the what we've experienced. So, and I think like what. A, part of a way forward is like in terms of the radical or revolutionary left um and building a social movement in the in the pandemic because it will last for a long time and in the collapse of capitalism and how we can start to to do that so i was reflecting kind of on these major crises that have happened during our lifetime and it's obviously it's not just like 9-11 in Iraq and the financial crisis but there's a degree to which I feel like the last probably the last five maybe seven years I think have been particularly dark in politics Mm. I think there's been very few like cracks of light and they've come from like often unusual sources like Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader of the Labour Party, the independence movement, those types of things. And I mean, the way that we view those moments of political darkness, I think is important. So the world is incredibly cruel and difficult. It wasn't, I mean, you think about the last five years, we've had the refugee crisis, which nobody is really talking about that anymore. We had a baby washed up on a beach, mm. like which nobody talks about anymore. Like these are fundamental things that have happened in society. But how do we relate to them? Like I think that part of the problem for the left is that we often relate to them as individual people. 
you know what I mean? Because we don't have a cohesive idea that we can collectivize around. So I've mentioned this before on the pod, like when you had like strong communist parties and strong churches, like strong like institutions where there is a, a singularity of purpose mm. in the center that people can congregate around. I mean, you can see the right are actually getting this pretty bang on in some places about how you relate to the, the difficulties and tragedies in the world. You've got Jordan Peterson um, doing his 12 steps for living life or 12 rules for, mm. you know, getting yeah. on with things. So there's like the, there's elements of the alt-right um, who are looking at building a, a philosophy, yeah. like a daily practice philosophy of how to live and how to relate to these difficult times that the left has never really come to terms with like in modern times. Mm-hmm. So there isn't really like a sort of central idea that people can collectivize around. Does that make sense? Yeah. Can I make a point about this? Because I think there's, 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 another, there's another element that links into that we haven't really discussed and perhaps we'll have to discuss it in greater depth at another point. But the geopolitical situation is in enormous flux. The Western response in general has been utterly pathetic and solidarity within the Mm. Western sphere has collapsed. Mm. And that's also about ideology. That's also about the decline of liberalism as an ideology and the lack of leadership that's coming from nationalist movements and so on. But the even stronger ideologies out there in the world system than what's coming from the new right are things like Hindutva in India, are things like uh, various forms of Islamism. There are things like uh, the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party is uh, projecting a model for how the future of capitalism should look all over the world right now. They are selling it with aid to countries that things like the European Union aren't supplying to. China's supplying aid to Italy. China's supplying aid to Serbia, which was the a country that was supposed to be the the you know jewel of ascension into the European Union this year. And China has just come in and just snatched it, right? Um, and they are saying, look at us. We defeated coronavirus and we defeated it quickly uh, and humanely and effectively. And we have a model of capitalism that works. And that doesn't just uh, provide economic growth. It also provides a grand sense of national identity, of security, um, of identity and so on, right? This is the future of, you know, this is the the viable model for the future and so on. Uh, You have things like Hindutva. I mean, it's one of the, one of the responses to this rise of coronavirus. Well, the rise of coronavirus in India was that um, the pogroms against Muslims intensified, right? So you're starting to see a new world ideological situation where um, liberalism has been grossly weakened and what is responding in the world system is much stronger, more authoritarian, more identitarian uh, modes of politics, which are attaching themselves also to forms of economic development. So you're seeing a real fracturing in, in, in global ideology. And I agree with you. And this current situation only heightens all those tensions further. There has to be an ideological response to the left, which is just not so banal and feeble. And just telling people that the whole meaning of their lives are, you can do whatever you want and we'll give you a strong welfare state. How much value does that attitude have in the current world? As of an hour ago, when we watched that speech by the UK chat, Chancellor. It's pathetic. 
It just it just means nothing to anyone anymore. I mean, think about how profound the next few months are going to be as a challenge to the concept of consumerism, yeah. to the ideas of individualism that we've all been raised to, to, to and, and been told are precious and untouchable when we live in a state where the state is telling you how to behave, telling you it will guarantee you an income that you need to pull together in the interest of certain identities like nationhood and so on, right? The whole the whole edifice that grew up since 1968 as a response to that movement, partly informed by that movement, partly a cultural response to that, partly capitalism absorbing the leftism of, of 1968 was the creation of consumer-based individualism. Uh, this idea of the most moral thing that can possibly happen is that everyone is left to do precisely what they want with their life and no one else has a claim on anyone else or anyone mm-hmm. else's living, right? That entire ideological landscape is just absolutely collapsing. The left needs to break away from it fast, or we're just going to be totally culturally irrelevant, just as uh, we've been made sort of economically irrelevant by the strength of some of the state models of response uh, to coronavirus. It, there needs to be a new ethos. There needs to be a deep re-examination. Yeah, can I make a quick point about that? Yeah. Um, because I think that's absolutely right. And one of the main things I'm picking up in uh, in the Basque country in Spain right now um, is about China and about liberalism. So first China. China's providing aid to Spain as well. Um, now, there's two countries. Italy, yeah. You hear me? Yeah. yeah, go on. There's two contradictory things uh, uh, that people are saying about China. On the one hand, there's conspiracy theories. China did this to us. China did this to the West. They they spread this virus. They wanted to undermine us. That's going to be a very dangerous thing going forward because people don't understand this virus. They don't understand this invisible force that's contracting them and making them ill. So they have this idea it must be a foreign element the Chinese who are who are spreading it to them to weaken the West. That that's definitely going on. I've spoken to some older people in 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 Bass society who who are saying that. The other thing, the flip opposite of that, is people are saying China's the only people that are helping us. Brussels is nowhere. The European Union's nowhere. No one no no one's coming to help us except the Chinese. They're bringing ventilators. They're saving our lives. You know what I mean? So there's a fundamental thing there on both those things, on the conspiracy theory side and on the um, China's only people to save us, where people are looking at liberal Europe and they're saying it's useless. What does liberalism do for me right now? It gets me, the individualist part, the the social part of liberalism where I can go about and do what I want gets me ill, gets me a virus. The economic part doesn't even get me anything because the the economic part of liberalism is falling apart. So liberalism right now is falling apart in European society. People are looking at it and saying it can't provide for us. So I absolutely agree there's a fundamental contradiction there. But China is going to play a bigger ideological role in all of our futures. I think there's a big danger in the future that anti-Chinese racism in the United States, based on conspiracy theories about the virus, could drive imperialism. United States, US imperialism. It could be the, the ideological mobilizing force for US imperialism to contain China's rights. So I think I think that's if we're looking ahead to the kind of more medium to long term elements of how this is going to change the world. I would say China and its influence ideologically in Western society is definitely going to be part of the picture. 
Yeah, and that's even before we get onto the fact that the United States is going to have to respond to China at some point yeah. directly. There's going to have to be a, a confrontation. The United States ruling class is it's the one of the ironies of this period that Trump gave himself the central task of restraining China, uh, and it's under his presidency that China has experienced its greatest growth and global influence. Um, but what what's happening is th- these people are marching to a fault line and. Um, uh, yeah, at some point, China is going. America is going to try and reassert itself um, against uh, China. Clearly, we've got the rise of like strongman authoritarianism, a degree of paternalism, and so on, coming from the right. And there's various different rival versions of that. What's clearly over is the period that we call the end of history, like the period yeah. where um, we just kind of all assumed that Western liberalism had won both in the cultural sphere and in the economic sphere. It's quite clear that that's not going to be uh, providing any future. But the real danger in all of this is that the left is still clinging on to the end of history type politics, like into postmodernism and to all these things that have proved to be fundamentally self-defeating over the years. The old slogan of postmodernism was incredulity towards meta-narratives. A meta-narrative is precisely what people are witnessing now. Um, And all we can provide is like, you know, do your own thing, live your own life, make your own project, you do you. (laughs) And then on the other hand, we've got all these like minoritarian sort of type narratives at the same time. But there's no overall vision for the way that society should be at all coming from the left. There's no ethic, there's no overarching morality. Um, We've only got like post-1960 liberalism to cling to and wouldn't it be nice if we were still in the 1990s? Mm. Okay, Uh, should we wrap it up? I think we should. Um, Okay. um, Illinois has been locked down. uh, Just as we're closing, we we hear that Illinois is getting uh, locked down. And that's Um, 10 million people in Chicago alone. And um, if even you are listening to this podcast a couple of hours after it's recorded, then all kinds of shit will have happened <laughs> that we cannot possibly, yeah. um, uh, you know, refer to here. So I think we should keep these coming out as regularly yeah. as possible. We'll we'll try to do that. We might have to start doing it over the phone i guess yeah we might have to sort of do it entirely by skype so we'll try and work out ways to uh, keep the sound quality as as good as possible thanks so much ben it was really nice to speak to you and look after yourself thank you right we're done if you enjoyed the pod please um please share it and donate in the patreon oh yeah donate in the patreon um and people get in touch. What? Like, can people get in touch? Can they email or whatever? Yeah, they can get in touch. We're on Twitter at Contour Scott. Um, and then if you want to get in touch with any comments, you can email editor at contour.co.uk. Um, and David will probably <laughs> reply to you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. That's I don't have anything else to do with my life anymore. I'm stuck indoors. You love walking as well. I know. I, I, do walk walk. I do a daily walk. I do a daily walk.